passage today is Daniel 10, and that's going to go through chapter 11, verse 1. So all of Daniel 10, and we're going to end up in chapter 11, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left all alone. And saw the great vision, and had no strength, was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the later days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was made mute. And behold, one in the likeness of children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. 
and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in this book of truth. There is none who contends but my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Unseen does not mean unreal. Unseen, things unseen do not mean that they are unreal. Now, we're so glad to have some guests with us today who are part of a confirmation class from the Congregational Church up the street. So, for all who are joining us today for the first time, whether in person or online, what you just heard is we're continuing a study through the book of Daniel. Now, the events that we find in the book of Daniel occurred over 2,500 years ago in the city of Babylon, which history tells us was located in modern-day Iraq. And what we've seen in our study so far is that God's people, Israel, had been unfaithful to him. God had made a covenant, a relationship with Israel, but they were unfaithful to that covenant. They broke that relationship, and God had warned them time and time and time again. The consequences of your unfaithfulness is that you're going to be removed from the good land that I've settled you in, and you will be exiled. The problem is Israel didn't listen and didn't repent. So after many prophetic warnings began the downfall of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of God's people and the location of God's temple. And during the late 7th century B.C., again, about two and a half thousand years ago, God's people were conquered and they became a vassal or a servant kingdom underneath the large and powerful kingdom of Babylon. And it was about 605 B.C. that the Chaldean king, Nebuchadnezzar, took from Jerusalem some of the most young, promising men of the city to serve him. And he was going to train them in Babylonian literature and language and culture. And amongst those who were removed from Jerusalem to serve the king of Babylon was Daniel and his three friends who we know best as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And friends, when this all happened, Daniel and his friends were probably not much older than teenagers. They probably weren't much older than some of you who are here today. So they're taken into exile as teenagers. Daniel and his friends are trained up in the language and the wisdom of Babylon. And the royal court narratives of Daniel 1 through 6 tell us that Daniel and his friends faithfully served in the royal court of many powerful pagan kings. We find them interpreting dreams, facing the fiery furnace, the lion's den, but they outlasted the rising and the falling of many kings and kingdoms who ruled over Babylon. And with today's chapter, chapter 10, it is 70 years since Daniel's exile. Daniel, who was exiled as a teenager, is now in his 80s. And he receives one final vision. And the final vision is recorded for us here, starting in verse 10, all the way through the end of this book, chapter 12. But this morning, we're only going to introduce the vision. 
And according to the first verse of chapter 10, which Kevin read for us, this vision came to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, which was approximately 536 B.C., and that's actually significant. In the first year of Cyrus, in 538 B.C., when he rose to power, he issued a decree that we find in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, saying that the people of Israel were now free to leave Babylon, to leave their exile, and to return home and to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And by the time of Daniel's vision, here in chapter 10, the first group of Jewish exiles has returned to Jerusalem. They've begun rebuilding the temple of the Lord. However, they're facing opposition. They're facing discouragement. And by the time we get to this vision, they've actually stopped their work. And so it's during this time of discouragement that Daniel has this vision that's recorded for us in chapters 10 through 12. And this vision challenges us to understand that what is unseen does not mean it is unreal. That what is unseen to us doesn't mean that it is something that is unreal to us. And this is good because we humans tend to struggle with this idea. Back in 1846, Dr. Inga Semmelweis, who was an assistant professor at John Hopkins School of Public Health, he determined that childbed fever, childbed fever, which was the single most common cause of maternal death at the time, he determined it could be prevented if doctors would only wash their hands before delivering babies. You see, doctors were performing autopsies in one part of the hospital, then they were going to the maternity ward in another part of the hospital and delivering babies, but they weren't washing their hands in between. And Semmelweis hypothesized that while such things couldn't be seen, that there were cadaverous particles or little pieces of the corpse that the students were getting on their hands from the cadavers they were dissecting, and these were infecting the women, causing them to develop this disease and die. So he ordered, from now on, wash your hands. And more than that, wash your hands and your instruments in a chlorine solution. And when he did this, surprise, surprise, the number of deaths plummeted. Friends, today we know these unseen particles are called bacteria or germs. Unfortunately, in Semmelweis' time, when he, he started to implement this, you think that they would have embraced this new finding, but it wasn't. There was actually resistance to this idea, and it wasn't until 20 years later with the work of Louis Pasteur in the late 1860s that people started to accept germ theory. The idea that there were unseen entities that were affecting the seen world. Because we struggle to believe that the unseen is real. We struggle to believe often in unseen realities. Our human default is to believe that that which is unseen is probably unreal. It happened with germs then, and it still happens today when we start to talk about spiritual things. You know, our day and age is characterized by what's called naturalism. Naturalism believes that only that which is natural, only that which is material, that which can be seen, heard, touched, smelled, tasted, measured, weighed, examined, dissected by science, is real. And anything beyond nature, the supernatural, beyond the material, beyond our natural senses or the reach of science, well, that must be by default just unreal. Make believe. 
So things such as gods and spirits and angels and souls and unseen realms, because they're unseen, many people believe those things must be unreal. You know, to our modern idea, our modern ears, the idea of the unseen or the supernatural does seem a little childish or primitive or maybe just a relic of a time before science to explain to us the complexities of this world. And in such a passage like Kevin just read to us from Daniel chapter 9 might make us a little uncomfortable. I mean, we might feel a little bit foolish discussing things like this today. I mean, after all, aren't we modern people? Haven't we outgrown the need for ideas about unseen realms and unseen realities somehow affecting our seen world today? Our human inclination is to struggle with this idea because we tend to think that unseen means unreal. But friends, as humanity discovered with bacteria and germs, the unseen doesn't always mean unreal. There was, in fact, an unseen world of germs and bacteria that was affecting the seen world and making people sick. And so the question that faces us when we come to Daniel chapter 10 is just as unseen germs and bacteria were affecting the seen world, friends, could there be unseen spiritual realities that are affecting our seen world? And the vision that Daniel received here in chapters 10 through 12, described in Daniel 10.1 as a vision of a great conflict. He says there's an unseen conflict going on. It's not visible. It's not material. It's not military. It's an unseen spiritual conflict in an unseen spiritual realm. But he says, Daniel, it's affecting in some way the seen world. So could it be that there are unseen spiritual things that have an effect on our seen world? You know, if only we had an instrument that would allow us to see the unseen. Now, with germs and bacteria, eventually technology, the microscope, allowed us to see what were previously unseen realities, and that helped convince people that the unseen realities were real. And friends, in this way, I put out to you that I think Daniel chapter 10 is like a microscope for us. In the vision, God's pulling back the curtain of history to reveal the unseen spiritual realm and the unseen spiritual battle that is affecting the seen world. I mean, as we've noted before in our study, the second half of Daniel's book, all of these visions from chapter 7 to the end in chapter 12, these are apocalyptic literature. Our English word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal or revelation. So in the same way that Dorothy's little dog Toto pulled back the curtain in The Wizard of Oz and revealed the truth that the great floating head that everyone thought was The Wizard of Oz, was just an illusion created by a middle-aged man behind the curtain. Daniel chapter 10 pulls the curtain away and says there's an unseen spiritual conflict that is affecting what you see. That is affecting the seen, the, the seen world. And verses 1 through 4 set up the circumstances of the vision. We note the vision comes to Daniel as the first group of Israelites have returned to Jerusalem and are rebuilding and facing opposition and discouragement. And so what's Daniel doing? He's identifying with his brothers and sisters. He's praying 
He's mourning for them and He's mourning with them. It says that He abstained from delicacies of meat and wine and also from lotions that would have made living in the arid climate of Babylon far more tolerable. He's wrestling in prayer for God's people. And this vision, the vision that now Daniel receives, is an answer to Daniel's prayer. Verses 4-7 through describe the messenger who appears to Daniel, and it's clear that God did not use FedEx to deliver this message. This is no earthly human messenger that appears. This messenger is described, and he is glorious. And verse 7 tells us that only Daniel could see and hear the messenger. However, those who were with him, they recognized that something was happening, and they were utterly overcome by fear, and they all hid. It's similar to what happened to the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul had a great vision and a glorious light, and he heard the voice of Jesus appearing to him. And Acts chapter 9 tells us that those who were with him didn't see it. Acts 9-7 says, The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And that sounds a little bit like what happened to Daniel here. He, he sees a great vision, and those around him know something's happening, but they're, they're not quite sure, and they hide themselves. And Daniel himself is so affected by the presence of this angelic messenger and his message, he falls to the ground repeatedly during this vision, and the angel must give him strength and must lift him back to his feet just to receive it, because this is so utterly overwhelming. And did you catch the incredible thing the messenger declares in verse 12? In verse 12, he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Friends, from the first day, from the first day Daniel was heard. It has been three weeks of prayer and fasting, but Daniel was heard on day one. Friends, don't doubt that we have a God who hears. Don't doubt that we have a God who hears. And more than that, we have a God who responds. The messenger was sent, it says, because of Daniel's words, because of his prayer. So friends, whatever the vision of chapters 11 and 12 means, it is a direct response to Daniel's prayer. And as a response to Daniel's prayer, this vision is most likely of the near future. Verse 14 says this vision is for days yet to come, but that probably means days future to Daniel from his perspective and not necessarily the end of all days when Jesus returns at the end of time. Now, while Daniel was heard immediately and he says a response was sent immediately, we find a three-week delay between the messenger bringing the vision and arriving to give it to Daniel. And it wasn't lost in the mail. The messenger explains in verses 13 through 14 that his delay is because of someone called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who's again mentioned in verse 20. The prince delayed this glorious heavenly messenger somehow for 21 days. However, the messenger says he was finally able to come to Daniel, aided by Michael, one of the chief princes. This Michael who's mentioned again in verse 21 as Michael, your prince. So, wow, what's, what's going on here? Who is powerful enough to delay a messenger like the one that we see appear to Daniel? And who are these figures that are called here princes? Well, the name Michael means 
Who is like God? So if we have any Michaels here, your name is a question, and it's a really good one. Who is like God? But friends, this particular Michael is mentioned four times throughout the Bible. Twice we find him here in the book of Daniel. Once he's mentioned in Jude chapter 1 verse 9 where he's called the Archangel Michael. And in Revelation 12:1, we find Michael and his angels fighting against the devil. So when the heavenly messenger is discussing the prince of Persia and Michael, your prince, he's clearly referring to some kind of unseen spiritual realm and some kind of unseen spiritual battle that's going on. Something that's having an effect upon the real world. Friends, the Bible repeatedly affirms the existence of angels and of unseen powers. References to angels occur 116 times in the Old Testament, 175 times in the New. But yet, for all of the references we get, we don't have a lot of decisive information about angels. Every reference that we find to angels is really incidental. It's not about angels. We're actually learning more about God or what He does or how He does it. As such, what we, when we affirm about angels and spiritual beings, we need to be careful. We can affirm that they're real, but we need to be careful to only go as far as the Bible goes when we consider them. You know, for example, the sentiment, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, that's not biblical. That's from It's a Wonderful Life. So the 1954 song, Earth Angel, the mid-90s TV show, Touched by an Angel, and our recipe for angel food cakes are all inventions of humanity's imagination, not a revelation of Scripture. So, friends, many of the ideas that you and I probably carry around about angels are far more cultural or culinary rather than biblical. So, for the purpose of today's discussion, all I want you to consider is that the Bible does, in fact, affirm the existence of unseen beings and unseen realms, and here in Daniel 10, an unseen spiritual battle, but yet we're told that all these things have some sort of effect on the seen world. Just as the unseen bacteria and germs had a real effect on the seen world, this unseen spiritual battle is affecting our world. And friends, why is this important? I mean, what does this have to do with us today? Well, first, church, what we need to remember is that behind what we do see A spiritual battle is being waged. And friends, that battle is still being fought today. As we've studied through Daniel, and especially these crazy visions that we get in the second half of the book, we've previously referred to the words of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, just as we find revealed in Daniel chapter 10, there's still a spiritual battle being fought in our day. Now again, to our modern ears, this is probably uncomfortable, if not outright unbelievable. Really, an unseen battle and unseen forces affecting our seen world today. And you probably struggle to accept that. And yet, that's what we find repeated throughout the whole of the Scripture. Unseen does not mean unreal. 
In his book, The Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis warns the two most common things, mistakes that we make concerning spiritual reality. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So church, we should not be oblivious, but neither should we become obsessed. We dare not disbelieve, but neither should we see devils behind every rock or or claim the devil made me do it. Because humanity is still responsible and accountable for our actions. But there is an unseen spiritual battle and it affects our real world in ways that we don't even realize. So the Apostle Paul writes here in Ephesians 6 and he says, So don't be unaware of it. Instead, be prepared for it. And secondly, church, we need to remember that the battle is spiritual and not personal. The battle is spiritual and not personal. Friends, people are not the enemies. They're victims. In Daniel's vision, we see that while humans and human kingdoms are caught up in this conflict, humans are not the enemy, but a casualty. Church, the battle that we face is not against people, but against powers. It was very purposeful that we sang this morning the song, O Church Arise, in which we declared that we are an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. And also that our call to war is to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole again, we fight with faith and valor. Because church, the battle's spiritual. We love captive souls. We reach out to those in darkness, but we rage against the captor. We rage against principalities and powers that blind the eyes of humanity. We rage against those that are held hostage to empty and destructive philosophies that confuses about what God has created or God has said that destroys innocent lives, that calls evil good and good evil. Friends, the battle is spiritual. And it's a battle of kingdoms. It's a battle of truth. The battle's not against people. The battle is for people. The battle is not against people. The battle is for people and for their salvation. Reaching out to those held hostage by the darkness. And finally, church, we need to remember that the battle is spiritual and it is not political. Tuesday of the midterm elections, and I promise you that we will not vote in salvation, nor will we vote in damnation with Tuesday's election. Politics doesn't have that power. As the psalmist sings in Psalm 146, verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Church, our ultimate hope is not in presidents, princes, or political parties. Their power is limited, and one day every human kingdom will crumble. Those of you who've been with us for our study through Daniel, you might remember that vision that we found in Daniel chapter 7 about the four hideous beasts that rose up out of the sea. And it was told to Daniel, these four hideous beasts represent kings and kingdoms. And the ghastly beasts revealed that behind the actions and activities of every human kingdom, unseen and hideous forces are at work. And friends, the same is true of the princes and political parties of our day as well. Unseen and hideous forces are at work. 
Church, our salvation will come from neither the rising of the hideous beast of the elephant, nor the rising of the hideous beast of the donkey. Now, friends, this is not to say that there are not real differences between candidates and issues. This is not to say that there may not be an objectively better choice for candidates. This is not to say that you shouldn't go and vote on Tuesday because as citizens of this great participatory democracy, every one of you should vote. Study the issues. Know the candidates. Pray and vote your conscience before God. However, do so remembering that one day the kingdom of the donkey and the kingdom of the elephant are both going to crumble and be forgotten. And for any good that any of today's princes or political parties might do, friends, there are unclean and hideous forces at work behind them both. Jesus didn't come to serve or die to save the kingdom of the donkey or the kingdom of the elephant or even the kingdom of America. Our hope for salvation is not in any kingdom or power of man. Our hope is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, friends, if we see in this passage is there is a spiritual battle being fought. And, friends, if there's a spiritual battle being fought, what do we know? We know we're ill-equipped to fight a battle we can't see. We can't fight a spiritual battle that we can't even see, so we need a spiritual champion who will fight for us. And, friends, the gospel, the good news, the good news that in a little while we're going to come to the table and celebrate is that a Jesus is the spiritual champion who's come and fought for us. The Gospels record that when Jesus first arrived on the scene, there was a sudden flurry of spiritual activity. We see far more evil spirits openly at work during the time of Jesus' ministry than we see in all of Scripture up till that point. And that's because with the coming of Jesus, the invisible spiritual battle became visible. The invisible spiritual battle became visible. Daniel 10 reveals there's an unseen spiritual battle. But with Jesus' arrival, the kingdom of God was going to come to open battle with the kingdoms and powers of the world. Jesus declared in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Friends, prince of this world? Didn't we just hear about the prince of Persia? Didn't we just hear about the prince? Michael, your prince? Jesus says time has come to bring judgment on the prince of this world. And friends, in his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, Jesus was fighting a great battle with the prince of this world, judging and triumphing over him. And the Apostle Paul explains it for us this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The author of the book of Hebrews celebrates Jesus' victory in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So friends, by his death and his resurrection, Jesus did battle with the prince and the powers of this world, and he is risen triumphant. Spiritual battle has been won, and in his victory, Jesus has made a way for us to be set free. And you might ask, well, if that's true, Adam, then why would you say there's still an unseen spiritual battle today if Jesus came and won a decisive victory? 
D-Day is identified as the beginning of the end of World War II. When Germany was defeated in the Battle of Normandy, German power was broken in Europe, and there was no doubt that the Allies were going to be victorious because the decisive battle had been won. But friends, there were still battles left to be fought. There were still persons left to liberate. There were still pockets of resistance that had to be rooted out. And friends, lives were still lost. But yet the conclusion was certain. Because on D-Day, the decisive victory had been won. And in the same way, friends, the decisive spiritual victory was won in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But today, there are still skirmishes being fought. Captives are still being liberated. Pockets of resistance are still being rooted out. The church carries the gospel, the good news of Christ's victory, to the very ends of the earth. But friends, the outcome is secure. Victory's already been won. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the spiritual champion who's come to defeat the prince and the powers of this world and set free a humanity blinded and captive. And friends, we join as the church in this work. We do, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our war is not against persons, but against the ignorance of God. We push back the darkness by proclaiming the truth, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. That Christ has decisively won the unseen battle. That He is victorious and He is supreme over all the politics and powers and ideologies and identities of this world. That every kingdom and ideology and political power of humanity will one day crumble and fall. But His kingdom and all those who trust in Him will stand. The spiritual battle in Daniel's day asks the same question of us in our day. Friends, which power is going to endure? Which king is going to reign supreme? Which kingdom will stand? And in which kingdom might you and I now stand secure? And as we sang, though the nations rage and human kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for his truth remains, that my God is the Ancient of Days. And friends, is that your confidence today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. The truth that our God is the Ancient of Days. Thank you, Father, that Christ came and that he won the battle. Thank you, Father, that we can stand secure in him. That our hope is not in a person, is not in a political party, is not in our might, but is in the God who came, who fought the battle, and in Him we stand secure. And His death and resurrection we now come and celebrate. In Jesus' name, Amen. If the elders would come forward for the serving of communion.